Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today we hear exclusively from 2014 European Ryder Cup captain Paul McGinley. Hi, I'm Paul McGinley and you're listening to the Golf Monthly Clubhouse podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Clubhouse, Elliot Heath here. Firstly, hope you're all doing well and not missing golf too much again. I think we potentially have a bit of positivity this week with news that the lockdown may be slightly getting relaxed sometime soon. And we've reported, we've seen reports as well that uh, courses may be opening, I don't know, in the next month or so in, in the UK. So check out the Golf Monthly website if you haven't already. Uh, obviously, we're still in lockdown here in the UK, so nothing is known totally, but I think that we might be able to get out on the course fairly soon, obviously with restrictions, doing it safely in two balls, quite large intervals or something. We've actually got an article on the website right now, top of the page, which is what might golf look like after lockdown? That's really um, worth a read. Fergus Bissett spoke to three different golf clubs about their thoughts on that. So yeah, hopefully we can get out on the course. We've also got another article on what effect the lockdown will have on golf course conditioning. Obviously golf courses will be looking pretty good at the moment without the footfall and and just the great weather we've had. Right now it's been raining quite heavily here in Surrey so I think greenkeepers will be enjoying that quite a lot after the weather we've had. Um, hasn't rained in ages. Um, right back to today's podcast. Sam Tremlett spoke to Paul McGinley a few weeks ago and uh, yeah it's definitely one of the most interesting interviews we've had on the podcast I'd say I think you'll really enjoy this he got about 40 minutes with McGinley and um, yeah started off chatting about coaching the mental game then moved on to other things Uh, McGinley was really interested in talking about Rory McIlroy and then things like the distance in the game slow play technology and um, bits and bobs about the Olympics and Ryder Cup I do think that Sam had a very small audio issue at the start so we'll join the audio as Paul McGinley talks about the teams that that McElroy, Kepka and Rahm will have around them and how important those teams are and um, yeah then the interview gets going from there so it's like I said it's really fascinating and I hope you enjoy it so let's get into the interview now. They've all got good teams around them you know you can't do it on your own Tiger said that many times and very often you can't manage to do climb the mountain on your own you need to have a really strong team around you and uh, I think all three of those players do they're they're on a really strong pathway um they don't seem to deviate from that pathway and um you know their ambition keeps them focused and, and hard working from our perspective a lot of these guys these days have mental game coaches like coaches in terms of their swing physiotherapists and stuff so would you say in terms of teams uh, they all seem to have pretty good teams around them what what is it about is it more a talent thing for those three in particular? or? I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the talent is, is certainly important to it, but it's the quality of the team around you. You know, you can get specialists in all kinds of areas, but are they really going to contribute to you? Are they really going to push you forward? Are they really going to give you that extra percentage that they're, they're meant to bring to it? And, and it's the quality of the team you have around you that's, uh, that's vitally important. Um, and and uh, even though they might be well qualified, whether it be a swing coach or a physio or whatever, it's can they really make it bespoke to you um, and, and can they give you the edge and what are they bringing to the table as part of the team? Um, it's easy to fill a team, but it's filling with the quality team yeah. you know, of, of people that are really going to propel you forward. And uh, that's the key. That's the key in coaching. The, coaching is not, it's, the key to being a good coach is not just going and knowing everything about the swing. 
it's translating what you know about the swing to make the player better. Um, right. And that's a big gray area that nobody ever talks about. It's not just pure qualification. So much of it is communication and so much of it is, is understanding where to go with coaching and, and understanding what to say to the player and understanding what not to say to the player, what's not particularly relevant. Um, you know, Bob Torrance had a great saying, um, you, never, you never weaken a strength to strengthen a weakness. You know, there's a lot in that. And, uh, and I think that's, um, that's really is the key to coaching. Coaching isn't just about standing out and knowing a lot about the swing. There you go, off you go, that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do to be perfect swinging. No, because, you know, most of the great players in the game have all had idiosyncrasies in their swing. It's working yeah. around those and making those a strength rather than anything else. It's the same with when you come to the physical stuff. Um, when you come to the physical stuff, you know, what limitations do you have in your body? You know, I'm five foot seven. I'm not blessed with massive ball speed. I never was going to get massive ball speed. So it was important that, you know, I had a trainer, that my trainer was working around what my strengths were. Yeah. Not trying to get my ball speed up to what uh, Justin Johnson or Rory McIlroy's is. It, it, was, it was about making me more efficient at what I did. Then when it comes to the mental game, you know, my, my personality, you know, you know, focus your knowledge of the mental game um, on, on what the personality of that player is. So making all of these things bespoke, Sam, that's the key to, to, to great mm. coaching, making yeah. it really bespoke and relevant. And it's not, um, you know, one, br one brush paints all. Um, it's very important to make it bespoke. That's the secret. I wrote a piece actually in, uh, on the Sky Sports website this week on, 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 on coaching, and that's what I talked about. Do you think that's why um, there are fewer players go into coaching in terms of, so they understand the swing, but maybe they don't understand how to talk to I don't know, a young yeah. kid. Yeah, I mean, talking to them is one thing, um, but giving them stuff that's particularly relevant to their swing, that's right. a secret. That's a very difficult thing to do. You know, it sounds easy, but it's not. Uh, it's making contributions that are really relevant to the output, right. not just based on, on, on what you know to be correct and wrong. Because sometimes, you know, somebody like, for example, Paul Asinger during his swing, I remember speaking to him during his career, um, and he had this long, long time coach that he had, you know, from the start of his career. Um, he started making success on the PGA Tour. He was going well. Then he lost his game. And he had this big, strong Yamaha grip, as he called it, with his, you know, four or five knuckles in the left hand. And uh, he was going through a bad period. And, and he went to this coach and he said, look, he said, um, you know, I, I got to change my I got to change my grip. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the coach said to him, um, Paul, if you change your grip, um, our relationship is over. Go and find somebody else to coach you. Um, and, you know, that's great coaching. That's great coaching. You know, at that stage in his career, changing grip is not, is not what's needed. You know, I, I know at the moment Jordan Spieth is talking about changing his grip. And, you know, my, my answer to that would be Jordan has won four major championships with the grip yeah. he had. You know, uh, uh, go back to what you had. There's a template. Um, I'm a great believer in templates. If it's worked, you know, you have to reinvent the wheel. Go back to what's worked yeah. in the past. Yeah. Um, so in terms of mental game stuff as well, how should a player process bad things that happen on the course? Because for me, when I used to play, everybody always used to say to me, oh, just forget it, work on the next shot. I found that really difficult to do. What would you say is the easiest way to move on from bad shots, bad things that happen on the course, how to process them? Well, I mean, it's, again, go back to some of the great quotes in the game. Uh, um, Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer's quote was the the greatest strength, mental strength, the golfer can have is ability to forget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Jack Nicholas's quote, um, the most important shot in golf is the next one. 
Um, golf is not a science. It's not a perfection game uh, like other sports can be. Um, you know, snooker, for example, you can play pretty close to perfection um, to get a one four seven. Uh, you can never play the perfect round of golf. You're mm. constantly managing your battles. You're constantly making adjustments. Um, every single day you feel different. This, the, golf, the game is such a difficult technical game, uh, difficult physical game, difficult mental game. Every day you wake up, what did you eat in this morning? That affects your mood. It affects how you play, how you swing. You might have a tightness somewhere. Your swing is different. You've got to adjust. Um, so, I mean, again, it, it's a simple thing about, about the next shot. But, you know, that's, that's a drill. That's a drill that you learn. That's a mental discipline. Um, it's a mental discipline more than anything else to stay in the present and focus only on what's going on um, and, and getting into your template of what gets you back into that mindset uh, of taking one shot at a time. Now, some players focus on the target only. Some players have a feel in their swing. Some right. players look at the ball flight. Whatever that is, it's important to, you know, let the frustrations and whatever else is going around you to kind of let that glide away and go back into what works for you uh, in terms of, hitting good golf shots and hitting good putts. So how would you, or do you know of any people who, how, how they practice their mental game stuff? So I know Tiger used to do the thing of 10 steps and then he's thinking about the next shot. And obviously yeah. he practiced that with his dad and stuff. But are there any um, practice things that you used to do or other players that you know? Not really. It's just a discipline, to be honest, Sam. It's a discipline of getting into the, into the next mindset. Um, you know, um, a lot of the, this comes in practice. A lot of it comes in discipline. And I think that's what Dave Allred has brought to Molinari more than anything else, is that mm. mental discipline to forget about what's ahead, forget about what's in the past and stay in the present. And, you know, Bob Rotello talked a lot about that in all of his books. The ability to stay in the present is more important than anything else. Um, and it's a discipline. It, it's nothing more than a discipline. Um, tennis is the same. You know, I'm a good friend yeah. with Ivan Lendl, and it's one of the things he talks about as well is, you know, getting into the zone of every single shot. It's It's... It's a discipline in sport. It's a discipline in life. Um, as much as you have to, to plan for the future, when you're in the middle of an event, that's not the time to plan for the future. Um, it's mm. about planning for the next shot. Yeah. So you mentioned it just then. What, what does getting in the zone mean to you? Because we talk about it all the time in sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Good it seems question. like this thing that nobody seems to be able to, you can't really touch it or anything. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to... That, that's a great question, and you won't ask a better question than that all day, because uh, that's, that's the secret sauce. That's the ability. That's what separates the brilliant from the rest. And that's where coaching mm. comes in, Sam, because um, it goes back to the template. Everybody's got a different DNA in terms of how they play the game or how they play football or how they play rugby or whatever they do, uh, or certainly in individual sports, tennis. So it's about going back to your template of what works for you when you play your best. For example, I'm a field player, right? So, um, and say, Patrick Harrington is not a field player. He's a visual player. Um, yeah. And his idea of the mental game is all I got to do is see the target. See the target and just let myself swing. And if I just forget, don't even feel my swing, um, just, just focus on the target, my body will react to hit good shots towards that target. That's when he's in the zone. Now, I can't do that. That's not for me. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I got to feel something in the swing. I got to be in control. I got to have a feeling in the swing. When I'm when I'm playing my best and I'm in the zone, as the club is coming down to impact, I can actually feel one degree open at impact. I can feel one degree shut. I can feel closing down the loft. I have an incredible feel in my swing when I'm playing well. 
when I'm playing badly, I have no sense of awareness <laughs> where the golf club is. Um, so there's two different ways, you know. Um, another player might be on the ball flight. Greg Norman talked about the ball flight. He used to look up in the, in, in the sky and he would see the ball ripping through the, through the clouds. Um, and he would see it, you know, what height the trajectory would be against that cloud. Um, so everybody's different, and that's the key: is to go back. What works for you? What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for you, and that's what the key to great coaching is. Along with your coach, is figuring out what is your DNA, what works for you. That's the key. Is that why it's so important to have uh, like a good routine? So even if you're playing badly or playing well, you treat everything the same, which means you're more likely to limit. Um, that's, I haven't phrased that very well, but see what, see what I mean? Like, the importance of routine is to make everything kind of the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, routine is certainly a part of it. Again, that's part of the mental discipline, you know, and, and that's something um, I, I go, uh, sometimes when I do clinics for kids, you know, and I say, um, I say, okay, who, who here uh, ever works on a swing? Yeah, 100%, everybody puts up their hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, who here ever works on a pudding? Everybody puts up their hand. Um, what do you work on? And they all talk about, oh, I work on my grip or I work on my downswing or my backswing or I try to load or give me all of those things. And I say, okay, who here when they're playing, when they're practicing, ever works on their mental game and their discipline? Very rarely do you get a handful. <laughs> Something we don't do. Um, putting pressure into your practice sessions um, is vitally important. Again, I'll go back to Dave Allred. I'm a great believer in what he does, this performance style of coaching which mm. we're starting to see more and more on the tour. Uh, Bernd Fiesberger has just added somebody as well, too, um, as, a, as a performance coach. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see more and more of um, in, uh, in the years to come, is, is this ability to really, really hone in on your practice sessions um, and try to mirror the pressures that you feel and the turning inside your stomach and the anxiety you feel when mm. you're in the middle of a tournament because the more you prepare for that the easier it will be when you're in tournament play and, and i think that's that's the future of coaching yeah so that's you recommend to young uh, young players young amateurs that's the thing they should be doing right away correct i would say 40 percent practicing on your technique 60 percent um drills of of exerting pressure in your drills for example taking six balls um with a chip shot and mm-hmm. seeing how many of those six you can get it within 18 inches, yeah. um, you know, a, a, a club length around the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and then taking those six balls went into a bunker and hitting those six. So st- instead of sitting in a bunker or over a chip shot and throwing out the bucket of balls and just chipping to the same place time after time, that's nothing because that's not exerting the pressure. That's, that's not exerting anxiety. So you've got mm-hmm. to compete against, your, against yourself. Um, and, and you've got to... It's so vitally important. I can't stress how important it is, particularly as you go up the food chain of of of, of being a good golfer. Yeah. You get to the very elite level of you know men's or ladies' game. It's very important that you become a great competitor because everybody can play so well. The determining factor, going back to your very first question about those three guys, um, ambition and competitiveness is hugely mm. important. And um, whatever way you get that, um, you need to practice it. It just doesn't arrive. You just don't turn up in the first tee and all of a sudden it comes down. You know, mm. you have to you have to um, instill it in you, and you have to practice it in you. So when you get in the tournament, you should be like a like Second I used to call it, like yeah, like a greyhound coming out of the box. You know, if yep. you ever been to a greyhound uh, track, if you ever if you if you just go to where the box is, you know, as the hare is going around, and all mm. the, all the all the uh, dogs are in the in in their boxes, 
and they're scratching. They're trying to get out. They're scratching and scratching. And then as the as the hair goes by, it lifts up and they run out. That's competitiveness. And that's that's how I always used to feel. I wanted to feel. I played my best when I was couldn't wait to hit that first tee shot. Mm. When I hit the first tee shot, I couldn't wait to get to the ball to hit my next shot. That's being on the edge. That's being competitive. And, and it's easy just to go through the motions. That's what Tiger Woods has brought to the professional game better than anybody yeah. else. When he's there, he's there to play. He's not just there to, you know, just, be, you know, Jack Nicklaus was the same. You know, mm. they talk about Nicklaus practice as little as anybody. Uh, but when he did practice, he was really there to practice and nothing more. Yeah. So, so that's the advice you'd give for, like, young amateurs and top players and that kind of stuff. But what would you say to... I don't know, the average 15 handicap. Would you say doing the same kind of pressure practice, but maybe widening the kind of margin for error kind of thing? Or uh, That's part of it. But probably the ones who are further down um, that level. So you go to a 15 handicap, where I think for them, it's, it's more about getting good technique and getting good lessons. Yeah. You know, because if you don't have a, you know, Foundation. The de- definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and over. You know, you've got to understand when you hit a good shot, why you hit the good shot. And, and you've got to have somebody explain to you, well, the reason why you hit it out to the right is because you do this. So then you can work on it. So I think the more handicapped players need more coaching, to be quite frank. Right. Uh, okay. And less of this competitiveness. It's just the further you go up the food chain in, in terms of the elite levels in the game, that's when competitiveness distinguishes the good from the very good to the great. Yeah, perfect. So those are the mental game stuff. I've just got some general questions on the state of the game. I want to get your opinion on McElroy. So obviously he had an amazing year last year, but obviously he fell short in the majors again. Do you think it's become, we all know how talented he is, but do you think it's become like an issue now? or Because or, it's obviously he hasn't won one since 2014. Do you think it's in his head or what, what's your opinion on Rory? Um, the biggest challenge McElroy faces at the moment and all elite players face this when they get to the top. Jordan Speed has faced it as well, and he's struggling with the same thing. Mm-hmm. When you make a name for yourself and you have a reputation, and when you're as good as McElroy is, um, and when everybody else knows you, you're the best player. Yeah. And you look up and down the range and you hit the ball better than anybody. And everybody recognizes you as the number one player in the world. That's a tough place to be in because it brings a lot of expectation. He knows as well as anybody at the end of his career he's going to be... Um, you know, he's going to be rated against how many major championships he won. He yeah. knows the pressure that they exert. And getting over that expectation level, dealing with that expectation level, playing under the influence of that expectation is an incredibly difficult thing. And I think that's where Rory struggles at this moment in time. Um, yeah. I think when he came on tour earlier in his career, when he had that flurry of major wins, that was... Um, it was, he was a little bit naive. He was doing it without thinking about it too much. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. maturer now. He's more deep thinking now. Um, he's older now. So um, I believe that w- w- when he gets over the next hurdle of winning a major championship with this yeah. expectation on his shoulders, where he is now in his career, he'll see that this will be the template. You know, he'll f- figure out a new template of dealing with this pressure. And when he gets that and believes in that, he'll go on to win a number of majors after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where he's at. He's wrestling with expectation at the moment. Uh, and that's what made Tiger Woods so great. The expectation actually accelerated his performance rather than hindered it. Um, and if you look at all the players, they all suffer from that. It, it's a very, very difficult place to be. It's not just yeah. unique to Rory. Jordan Spieth is really wrestling with it at the moment. 
Um, you know, Brooks Kepka, the way he started out this year, you can see, you know, everybody's looking at him now when it comes to major championships. Yeah. There's massive pressure on him to perform. That's a difficult place to be in, a very, very difficult place to be in. Um, but it's not insurmountable. Um, and, and when McElroy figures out how to play with these expectations on him mm-hmm. um, in major championships, and I know he does it a lot in, in other tournaments, but when he manages to do it in major championships, when the heat is really on, when the spotlight is on him, when he's expected to win, when he's going into the last group um, and, and comes through the other side with massive expectation on mm-hmm. his shoulders from externally and internally, that's when I think he'll go on, not just to win one major championship, he'll win a Florida after that, because what we have learned from McIlroy over the years, he's a very, very good learner. When he learns how to do something, it beds in. Yeah, awesome. Um, so linking with, obviously, McIlroy, what do you make of the whole discussion in terms of distance in the game? Do you think it's not really an issue? Do you think bifurcation is the way to go? Or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think the game of golf is a very difficult game. Um, and uh, the horse is bolted. You know, the governing bodies... Um, uh, have let the horse bolt, which is really disappointing. Um, because the distance the top players are hitting the ball now is ginormous. Uh, yeah. Secondly, um, the way the horse is bolted is also a problem because the, the, greater your, the greater your ball speed, the greater um, benefit you get from modern technology. Mm-hmm. So the more you bend the face, the more you bend the face, the more spring you get, the more spring you get, the further distance you have. So they've really played into the hands of the already powerful. Yeah, um, which is really disappointing. Um, I've always been a believer in bifurcation. Um, I think the game is uh, becoming, you know, it's very difficult for the, for for the, for the normal player. The average handicap in the world, I believe, is eighteen. Um, yeah. And um, what I will be in favour of is restricting, restricting the technology rules around the equipment that they can use, so to make the game easier for them while right. at the same time holding the professionals to where they are and not going any farther forward than they are, if anything, slightly regressing it a little bit. Um, that's that's what I would believe in. So how would you stop? So, for example, from what you've just said as well, though, the, bit, the, the guys that hit it the furthest, if they do bring the ball back, let's say, they're probably still going to hit it furthest. So that's a common complaint that a lot of people have said about if you limit the equipment, the biggest guys like Brooks is still going to hit it further than a Zach Johnson kind of thing. So how would you deal with that issue as well? I wouldn't deal with it. That's the way it is. You know, Zach's got other strengths. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Brooks Kepka, one of the strengths in the game, um, if you're blessed with, with long distance, that's yeah. a great benefit to have. You know, Zach Johnson has got different strengths that he relies on. Mm. Big hitting has always been important in the game. And I'm not yeah. saying notify. I'm not saying take it away. If you have the ability to hit the ball a long way, that's a great advantage that you have, and that shouldn't be diminished in any way. Mm. Um, what I, personally, I, I, I would hold the top level where it is now, um, absolutely make it stringent so they can't go any further in terms of um, technology. Mm. But at the same time, I would open up the doors for amateurs to use different, uh, and the technology companies to go off and create new ways um, and new golf clubs and new balls that will help the the amateur um, play a game that's incredibly difficult. So in terms of slow play, do you think that's much of an issue now? Because obviously as a player, like we did an interview recently with a whole load of players and they said it wasn't really that much of an issue as a player. But from your broadcasting role, what do you make of so for example, like the European Tour guidelines on speeding up play? What do you make of everything around that? 
it's it's much ado about not a whole lot to be honest. You know the the TV manufacturer, the TV companies are not that bothered about it because with good production you can easily you know you know for example that you know the Shambo when he takes the club out of the bag it's going to be you know, <laughs> forty five seconds before he hits the ball. Yeah. Um, so a good product uh, producer will only go to you know they'll wait. 25, 30 seconds before they mm-hmm. go to him as he starts to address in the ball, whereas a Rory McIlroy is going to be 10 seconds. Um, so they know that once Rory takes the club out of the bag, he's going to go quick. So they've yeah. got to be ready ready for that. So, you know, that can hide it. Also, if a TV telegast um, extends by 15 minutes or 20 minutes, that doesn't really matter to the TV company because they might get an extra, adver- an extra advert or whatever in there. So, again, the horse is bolted. The new norm is to play in four hours, 15 minutes for a uh, well, four hours, 40 for a three ball. Yeah, um, that's the new norm. A lot of that is down to as well to the golf courses being as long as they are. Mm. A lot of it is down to the scientific way that players play the game now. Everything has to be, you know, down to the last inch in terms of yardage. And you have to have the green books and, you know, they don't want to make a mistake. There's so much at, at stake. So I think a lot of there's a lot of reasons why. Um, plays as slow as it is um i think club golfers um certainly play a lot quicker than the pros do um, and i wouldn't be taking the lead from the pros because as i say the horse is bolted in a lot of ways the new norm we've we've accept what the new norm is now and the new norm is four and a half hours to 440 for a yeah. three ball do, do you think maybe we should try things like taking away green books stuff like that uh not necessarily yeah i mean yeah Possibly, but I, I think the lasers. I mean, let them have a laser yes, rather yeah. than these. I've said this for ages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, uh, we play in the Stacia Tour and the European Tour, and and uh, we're allowed to have lasers. It's easy. Hit the ball in the rough for twenty yards offline. You're not having to go over and pace it to a to a yeah. spot in the fairway, and you know, take two minutes doing that. You can just get your laser out. Boom. There's a yardage. Look at the pin position, and off you go. So, play on the Seniors Tour is is a lot quicker as a result. Um, so that would be one simple way of doing it. Um, yeah, I've said that for ages because at the end of the day, these caddies are so and players are so good. They're always going to get the right yardage. So why not make yeah. it easier? Just yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more on that. Um, do you think we kill could kill two birds with one stone in terms of rolling back balls or equipment, which would therefore make courses shorter and therefore make the game quicker? Is that a avenue to go down? Yeah. Yeah, again, that's a very difficult thing to do. Rolling back the ball is an incredibly complex thing to do. Um, it'll take a lot of leadership, a lot of braveness from the people at the top of the game. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, no. What I can see is that they will kind of really, really stifle any further advancements in technology for the pros, but at the same time, open up the amateurs to an easier game, as I said earlier. I think that's, you know, whether that be bigger-headed clubs to make the ball get in the air easier or... All of those different scenarios. I think that that's what you're going to see uh, more of in terms of verification. But I don't think making a golf course that much shorter and making the ball spin out of control more would would, would speed up play. Okay, awesome. I think we just have to accept it, Sam, to be honest. It's kind of is what it is now. It's yeah. not going to go back to three and a half hours again. No. Those days are gone. It's the new norm. <laughs> so obviously now the Olympics has shifted to 2021. Um have you been approached? Because obviously you were involved in 2016, correct? In terms of the yeah, Ireland I'm not going to be involved. No, I'm you're not, not involved. No, I've, I've, I did the last one. I really enjoyed it. It was amazing, but it was a lot of effort. I put a lot of effort into it, and uh, no, I've I've other things going on. I'm too busy doing other things. 
<laughs> what did it entail in 2016? It was Padraig and Seamus, correct? Yeah, it was. And initially it was going to be Rory and Shane. So, you know, I yeah. thought we had a great chance of a gold medal. I thought uh, it would have been amazing um, to go down there with a legitimate chance. Um, not diminishing Padraig or, or, or Seamus, but, you know, they were well down the world rankings and they certainly yeah. weren't uh, going to be favoured. It was unlikely they were going to win a medal. Uh, having said that, it was a great performance. Um, I did the girls' team as well, um, with their women's team, with um, Stephanie Meadow and Leona Maguire, and that was terrific. I really enjoyed that and learned a lot about the ladies' game through that. Um, it was an amazing experience. I loved every second of it. Um, all the Ryder Cups and everything I did, um, I mean, I don't think emotionally I, I got as caught up as I did watching the Olympics. It really was that special. Going and seeing other sports as well, being part of the Olympic squad, the Irish Olympic squad down there. It was mind-blowing. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and I'm a great believer in golf in the Olympics. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a seat at the top table in the biggest sporting event in the world. And I think it would be crazy uh, as golf to be nonchalant about it. And I'm really hoping that players buy into it. It's really important in terms of promoting our sport. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so are there any Irish players or young players that you've seen that are ones to watch, not just in the Olympics, but in terms of going pro, professionals that you've seen or... Young Irish guys coming through. Young Irish guys or just young players, young European players, or just ones that you think are ones to watch? Or... Oh, God, you caught me in the hop now. I mean, a lot of these, <laughs> you know, a lot of these players come on tour, Sam, and, and they all look so good. They all yeah. look so good when they come on tour. Um, and it's, it's, like you said earlier, you know, what's the separating factor? What's going to drive them forward? Um and it's ambition. Um, it's ambition. It's competitiveness. It's uh, having a good team around them. All of those things. So, um, who stands out of the young people? I mean, this young Perez had a great end of year season, and yeah. I watched him a bit down in Mexico this year. I think he's got. He hits the ball amazingly well, like a lot of them do. He's big. He's strong. He's powerful. His short game has a lot of work to do, uh, but when he gets the short game sorted out. Um, to the level of the very top players, I think he's mm -hmm. got potential um, to be something special. But there's so many. There is. There's yeah. so many, you know, good guys out there. Um, so many. And and it, it's focus, it's desire, it's ambition, it's competitiveness. That's what I look for. Because everybody's a good player. And you can tell a lot in their interviews. You can tell a lot in their behavior. You can tell a lot just by observing them. Um, and you can tell quite quickly um, if somebody's got that that bite mm. in their career to get to the very, very top level or not. So what would you say are the biggest differences between young players now and in the past? So, for example, we did a piece on um, young players now seem to have no fear. So we had Matt Wolf, Morikawa and uh, Hovland. But like, would you say what would you say that's the main difference or preparation? I think the standards of coaching are much better now in amateur games. Um, I think technology um, and the fitness levels and the fitness that they put into it makes guys turning professional um, closer to the level they need to be at than they've ever been at before. Um, I think the competitiveness of the college system, particularly in America, um, yeah. you know, really cuts their teeth um, in competitively. They drive each other. Those three that you mentioned, those three American guys, um, Wolf, Marikawa and um, Hovland, have really driven each other forward. Um, 
college golf is now on TV in America, which it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and these guys have big programs with a lot of money invested in these programs. They've got trackmans. They've got amazing facilities that they're able to practice on. Um, so I think the levels of work put being put in at amateur level have never been higher. Um, so when they do get to the professional game, they're, they're able to, to hit the grade quite quickly. Um, and I think a lot of that is the fact that they've, the amateur game is preparing them so much better for a professional game than it yeah. was, ever was. I mean, for example, you know, when I turned pro in 1991, you know, um, mine was a very different amateur career than, say, Rory McIlroy's, who turned pro um, 10 years behind me. When did he turn pro? No, even more. What year did Rory turn pro? Uh, oh, 06 or something? Yeah, about 06, yes. Yeah. So he was 15 years behind me. Um, so to give you an example between my amateur career and his, I mean, my amateur career was basically playing in Ireland, playing scratch cups in Ireland, mm. playing the North, South, East, West and Irish amateur. Um, and then in my last year, because I was trying to make the Walker Cup team, um, I played in the Lytham, I played the Welsh Open and I played the Scottish Open. Um, I stayed in a bed and breakfast, financed it myself, um, all of those things, uh, got a boat over all of those things. That was the height of my amateur career. Um, yeah. That was as much as I could do, as much as I could afford. You take Rory McIlroy when he turned professional. He had traveled all the way around the world. He had played in Australia as an amateur. He played in professional events. He had played in, in Spain regularly, Portugal regularly. He'd been in America regularly. He'd been on the Junior Ryder Cup team. Yeah. And he'd been all over the place. Um, and, and cutting his teeth, playing in South Africa, playing in South America, all of those things. So he's incredibly well prepared when he did um, hit the grade of professional golf and on off he went. So his, uh, his training was at a much more advanced level uh, as an amateur than mine would have been. Uh, and then you move it even on from him to, you know, you take somebody like Cormac Sharvin, now a young Irish guy just turned pro a couple of years ago, and, and he's at an even higher level. I mean, he's been around the world three or four times mm. doing all of those things. So I think the, the investment at the elite level of amateur golf is preparing these guys um, so much better for turning pro. And that's why they do so well so quickly. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm just going to shift on to the Ryder Cup, if that's right. So switching to some stuff on, about Harrington. So obviously you've had a lot of success with him and your careers have, have mirrored each other, that kind of thing. What do you think he's going to bring to the role of captain? One of the things that, uh, obviously he's got a he's got a big CV. He's very well respected by the players. And that's first and foremost. And, Secondly, um, he'll be very organized. He's a deep thinker. Um, he understands the game. He understands the different personalities within the game, which is really important. He just doesn't see the, the game through one lens. And, you know, one of the reasons, if you look at the great players in the game, very re- re- rarely do the great players make the great captains. And, and I think a lot of that is the fact that to be a great player, you need to have one lens. You see the game mm-hmm. through one lens. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I think... Um, as a captain, you can, you got to have different lenses. You've got to have so many different lenses because everybody's so different. Um, so he brings that. And then the third thing is, um, I think he's well qualified now to step up as a captain, having done three vice captaincies. And, and I go back to 2000 and, uh, 2008, Faldo, and, and you know, me being part of that decision-making process that Nick was to, to be the captain. I feel that we did a disservice to him in terms of he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a vice captain before he was a captain. And I think that's critically important. Um, that succession planning that we have in place in Europe is a big edge that we're able to give the captains before they step up into being a captain. Um, I was a vice captain twice, and I did two Seve Trophy captains 
before mm. I elevated into the captaincy. And, and I felt I was well prepared for, for a very different role from obviously being a player in, in being a captain. Yeah, so speak from your experience, what are the main issues that Harrington will be dealing with now and, or, and closer to the event? What are the main issues that... I, I think the big issue at the moment is the is is the difficulty in the situation we're in, and the you know the the fact that we don't have a firm date and we don't know exactly what's going to happen on that date, and trying mm. to plan around um, the different distractions that are going on and the moving the moving sands, the shifting sands that we have all the time with this virus. Is it going to go on? Is it not going to go on? Is there going to mm. be crowds? Is there not going to be crowds? Is there going to be a qualification period? Is there going to be picks? You know, all of those different scenarios make the job even more complex. So that's that's what I see is his biggest challenge at the moment. The other thing is he's going to have a great team. You know, our, our team, our, the team we put out in France was the strongest team we ever put out. The, mm. the world rank can show that. The fact that all 12 of the players who have played there had finished 11th or better in the French Open around that golf course. We were incredibly well prepared um, mm. compared to the Americans. Um, we were comfortable on that golf course. We were comfortable on a short, tight golf course. Uh, the Americans weren't, and we had a lot of advantages. Um, going away from home is always more difficult, but if you were to pick a, a golf course anywhere in America that would suit us most, it would probably be a feel to it. The yep. Europeans have always played well there in the past. Um, and, um, you know, if we do have to play behind closed doors now without crowds, that's going to, obviously going to be a big advantage to the away team and not the home team. We're in good shape, and, and I'm hoping the Ryder Cup does go ahead. Yeah, what did you make of the, the selection of Whistling Straits? Obviously, because of Steve Stricker. I, actually, I'm not sure, actually. Was, they knew he was going to be captain, and then did they make the decision for the course, or was it... Sorry, I'm not sure which way around. Uh, no, the course always comes first. You see, it's, yeah. all about, it's, it's all... First and foremost, it's about one thing. It's about money. It's about commercialism. Right. Who's going to pay to have the Ryder Cup? And they've had a PGA Championship there. The PGA yep. of America own the PGA Championship, and they also own the Ryder Cup. And they have a commercial deal with Herb Kohler, who owns it up there, right. and hence that's why it's there. So first and foremost, and only other reason, uh, same in Europe, it's all about money. Right. What do you what do you make of the the course? I love it. I I love it. Yeah, I played well there in the PGA Championship when um, Vijay Singh won. I think I missed the playoff by two shots. I loved it. I played really well around there. I felt comfortable on it. It was windy. It's on the shores of Lake Michigan, which is uh, Lake Michigan. It sounds like a lake, but it's not as bigger than the Irish Sea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it really has that feel of a lynx about it, even though it's not a lynx per se. It's mm. got that wispy, marrow kind of long grass. Um, it's got fescue greens, you know, things that we're comfortable on that we grew up on. Windy, mm. strong winds blowing in off the, off the water. Uh, a little bit like King's Barnes, it runs right down along the side of the water, so yeah. you get put it quite a quite a bit. The weather can be inclement, um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's not a particularly American style golf course. Um, it will be more European style, and and I think that combined with the fact that quality of our players has never been higher. Um, you know, mm. I really do fancy our chances. It's never easy, um, but I do f fancy um, we have a good shout. So do you think with the strength of European golf at the moment, so there's been a discussion in our office back in the um, that it's like it's both good and bad. So like it's good because you've got a lot of players to pick, a lot of players that should make the team, that kind of stuff. But also the expectation of you've got such a strong team, you're supposed to win kind of thing. So do you think which side do you sit on? 
Oh, we're always the underdogs. Um, you know, we make ourselves the underdogs. And, you know, Paul Azinger saying what he said a couple of weeks ago about Tommy Fleetwood, certainly those kind of comments are just perfect for us. That's yeah. exactly the attitude we want Americans to have because it places us as the underdogs, even though we've got players that are dominating and the best player in the world at the moment, Rory. Um, yeah. You know, we love when the Americans put us down because that's when we're at our strongest. So how difficult is it, again, speaking from your experience, how difficult is it to manage the players but also get the right pairings? So like, I'm reading a book at the moment about captains and how difficult it is and how thin the margin is of getting a pairing right or wrong. How, how difficult is that for Harrington at the moment, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's the same for every captain. It's very difficult, you know, particularly when it comes to the foursomes. Um you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways of approaching at it. There's no one right way, and there's no wrong wrong uh, one wrong way. Um, I tried out a lot of the partnerships uh, in European tour events in the months preceding the Ryder Cup. So I was putting players together without telling them, just to get a feeling of of them right. being more comfortable around each other, getting to know each other's games, so that when we got to the Ryder Cup, they hit the ground running. Uh, and I said, mm-hmm. look, uh, you've played a lot with this guy this year, and. This is why, because I want you to pair together, and the players didn't know. So if, if they didn't get on well, I was able to say, okay, that's not a good, that's not a good dynamic, and and, and that's how I prepared. Other captains have the view. Uh, Thomas and Darren, in particular, had the view of playing with the players um, as they try to make the team, um, and assessing them there. I would have viewed to if they don't play well in my company, they're not going to play well in the Ryder Cup. Uh, I didn't have that view. I was I, I was I hated when the captain was playing with me as I was trying to make the team. There was enough going on without the captain. Uh, looking over my shoulder, kind of judging mm-hmm. what, how I was playing. <laughs> so I, I stay clear of that. But no one was right, no one is wrong, you know. Um, I'm not saying mine is the right way because, uh, you know, Thomas in particular was, was a very successful captaincy too. Right, that's that's everything, Paul. That's all, okay. all the questions I've got written down. All right, Sam. Good Thanks good for your questions. time. Thanks, man. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. So there was Paul McGinley. Thanks to Paul for his time and... I hope you all enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. That was, uh, yeah, like I said earlier, one of the most interesting interviews we've had on the podcast this year. So yeah, thanks for listening again. The podcast will be back next week. Tom will be making a return next week and we'll be answering your questions. We'll also have the fascinating story from TaylorMade's Keith Sparbro about how TaylorMade signed John Rahm. Honestly, this is, um, again, another great interview of how they met John Rahm whilst he was still an amateur and Sparbro said that he thought Rahm was the sixth best player in the world before he'd even turned pro. And obviously Rahm's gone on to become the second best player in the world as things stand. And I'm sure you guys will think it as well, but he's got to be a future major winner and future world number one. So yeah, it's really interesting that next week. Like I said, we'll be answering your questions as well. Yeah, hopefully we'll have some positive news for you about lockdowns being relaxed golf being played again sometime in the near future we may also know about the Ryder Cup will it go ahead without fans or will it be postponed and yeah there's another great deal as well on the magazine it's still three issues for five pound so head to the website to take advantage of that and remember to follow us on Facebook at Golf Monthly Magazine and on Twitter at Golf Monthly and on Instagram at Golf Monthly we're also very close to hitting 100,000 followers on Instagram and we've got a really good tight list giveaway for that. So if you go on the homepage, scroll down a little bit and you will see that competition there where you can enter. So that brings an end to today's podcast. Thanks again for listening. Remember to subscribe on your usual provider and please do leave us a review. It really does help if you um, listen on Apple Podcasts. But for now, you'll hear from us again next week. Thank you. Thank you.